This is an ABC podcast. Don Winslow says that when he was growing up, the joke went that there were only three possible careers, fireman, policeman or criminal. But Don's managed a few others over the years. He's been a private investigator, a movie theatre manager and a safari guide in Kenya and in a giant panda park in China. But what Don Winslow is best known for is his books. He's written 21 best-selling crime novels. His latest, City on Fire, is a reimagining of Homer's Iliad, set not in ancient Greece, but among warring gangs on Rhode Island in the 1980s. Don's novels are gripping, explosive crime stories, but he also wants to educate his readers about the reality lying behind the drug war headlines and politicians' promises to get tough on crime. Hi, Don. Hi, how are you? Very well, Don. In your, in your time as a PI, your workplace was New York's Times Square. What was Times Square like back when it was your beat? Yeah, back in the late 70s and early 80s, because I'm old, you know, um, it, was, it was gritty, it was dirty, it was dangerous, and I, I have to confess, part of me misses it. Did it feel lawless? Oh, it was lawless. It was it was absolutely the wild, wild west. You know, look at it. It, it was the, the low point of New York City in many ways. The city was bankrupt. Uh, there was a, you know, serial killer, son of Sam running around. Drugs were out of control. So it was so lawless that the police were overwhelmed. And so private eyes like me, you know, the, our company was hired to to help cut down on minor crime in Times Square and Hell's Kitchen. And so, yeah, I made minor league drug buys. I chased pickpockets. Um, one of my least attractive jobs was as bait. I'm 5'6", 130 pounds. I don't know how that translates into Australian, but it's small. You're not imposing. <laughs> not imposing, exactly. Well put, Sarah. And so I, I would like walk around the neighborhood trying to get mugged. And then they'd have like imposing people, really big, angry people behind me, hopefully close enough to jump in. That must have got scary. Don, what kind of interactions did you have when you were walking around hoping to get mugged? Well, you know, you you try to look like a tourist and and you try to have a wallet sticking out and you try to look like you don't know where you're going. And you can only pull that stunt so many times, thank God, by the way, uh, because, of course, people get to know your face, you know, and they'll rat you out in a heartbeat. And so, you know, it was it was the rodeo, really. And then what would happen after someone mugged you? What was what was next? The security people would beat them up, basically. Listen, it, it was tough there. The, the police used to take people into the alley rather than arrest them. And and there was a place named after a, a sergeant called Levine University. It was an alley off Times Square. And he, he had a little school bell inside of his uniform. And when he was about to teach somebody a lesson, he'd ring it and, you know, and they'd go at it. It was it was tough. Did things yeah. ever get dangerous for you physically? I had guns pointed at me. Um, I was stabbed once. It's it's not very romantic or dramatic. I was stabbed in the butt cheek. You know, it was not. It's probably <laughs> a safe place to get stabbed, I'm guessing. If you're going to get stabbed, that's the place to get stabbed. It's just more embarrassing than, <laughs> you know, than dangerous. Uh, so, yeah, it, it had its moments. 
One time I was on a stakeout and uh, on a Sunday morning in Times Square in those days looked like a science fiction movie, you know, very few people out on the street, garbage blowing around like tumbleweeds, you know, looked like Mad Max without the cool cars. And, and my idiot partners were across Broadway, you know, with the headsets on Yeah, everything you've seen in the movies. And I was about to buy some Coke, I think, from these two guys. And uh, I'd been up at it all night and I had, uh, believe it or not, long hair, uh, obviously where and radio you can't see me i don't have hair and uh holy sneakers and holy jeans and you know i look like a bum and uh i was just about to move in when i hear this voice behind me this this female voice just screech don winslow how the hell are you <laughs> and it was a woman i'd gone to college with in nebraska and and she was looking at me like, yeah, you turned out exactly the way we all thought you'd turn out. She, she was trying to take me to the Salvation Army or AA or something. And I was trying to say, cool it, cool it, just leave me. And then I could see my partner throw his headset down in disgust and the, the two you know, suspects flee. So it had its moments, Sarah. You know. And what work were you doing with the cinema? Why was the cinema hiring you to be a private investigator? Well, two things, theft. Movie theaters in those days, I don't know what it's like now, were just glittering walls of theft. Everybody was stealing from everybody. You know, the ticket takers were stealing from the theater. The doormen were stealing. The, the movie theaters were stealing from the distribution chains. The, you know, the studios were probably stealing from the actors, I imagine. So it was just this ladder of theft. I knew how the theft worked because I was a little Irish Catholic kid who turned in a, you know, a copy of honest box office figures and was fired for it. Really? And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what are you thinking? Uh, these add up. That's not the way it goes. And uh, so anyway, they, um, yeah, a friend of mine took over the management of a chain of legitimate movie theaters in Times Square. Most of them were porn theaters in those days. And uh, he needed someone to go undercover to see who was stealing from him. The answer was everybody. And, uh, and then I stayed with the agency. And then I was on the pickpocket squad, which is, is more fun than a human being should be allowed to have. More fun. Oh, my God. You know, it, it, Star Wars is playing in the background and you're playing Sheepdog and Coyote with some of the world's best pickpockets, most of whom, by the way, were middle aged white guys, you know, very well dressed. Uh, and so chasing them around and trying to catch them in the act, it, it was really a good time. Did you learn the tricks? Do you think you could pickpocket if, if you needed to? Yeah, I'm not known for my dexterity. <laughs> it requires some hand-eye coordination, so probably not. But I, I do know the tricks. Um, you know, they they would mostly target women's purses because women would set their handbags down in the seat beside them. And then there's a way of sitting sort of behind obliquely and tilting that seat from behind and then reaching up and under and, and getting, you know, whatever they wanted. You weren't allowed to proactively throw them out, even though we knew who they were. We had their pictures on the office wall. You could not ban them from the theater. And so what I used to do when I'd see them coming in, I'd, I'd go to the refreshment stand and I'd get a really goopy soda with lots of syrup. And then I'd run down the stairs and pretend to trip and pour it all over them. I bet they loved that. Yeah, or they hate it, or they'd fight. And if they fought you, you could then throw them out. Yeah. One of your jobs back then, Don, involved delivering cash to banks at, at mm -hmm. nighttime. How did you get that gig? 
the, the guy who had the gig before me was shot and killed. So there was a job opening, which wasn't explained to me until several weeks into the job. You know, someone casually said, hey, you know how you got this job? And I, no, you know, and I explained it. So, uh, yeah, that was always uh, tense. Uh, they, they used to make regularly scheduled runs on specified routes, which, of course, just made you completely vulnerable to being hijacked and ambushed and all that. So I, I started mixing it up, taking different routes and doing it at different times. But what you would do is you would tuck this bag into the back waistband under your jacket and then with your left hand, use the key to open the deposit. And then very quickly, as quickly as you could, use your right hand then to take the bag and shove it in. And I was in the middle of that one night when I was a hot summer night and I heard bam, 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 bam. And my first thought, Sarah, was it didn't hurt. Thank God it didn't hurt. I thought getting killed was going to hurt a lot worse than this. Uh, but it was the 4th of July, you know, the American independence and <laughs> when they shoot off firecrackers and that's what it was. So many classic New York movies start with a teenage runaway arriving at a city bus terminal. How were, yep. how was it that you were there to meet them? Well, uh, for a while, that was part of my job. Um, one of the tougher parts of the job, you know, was um, sometimes the agency would be contacted to try to find a, a runaway from obviously out of town, very often the Midwest, mostly girls, sometimes boys. And um, it, it was a hard job. Why? What was hard about that one? Sad uh, and, and morally conflicted, you know, because you hoped that you were sending them back to a better situation than they were in, but you never really knew. Now, the, the situations they could get into in New York City in the late 70s and early 80s were pretty dire. You, you would literally see pimps just waiting outside the Port Authority building station, just what they would call talent spotting, you know, uh, for teenage girls and, and sometimes for boys. And, and our job was to try to get to them before the pimps did. It got a lot more complicated afterwards. And what about those those pimps and, and other shady characters waiting for those runways, but for different reasons than you were? How did they feel about you on their turf? They did not like us. They did not like us at all. You know, it was interfering with their business. Another reason you would bring a cop, you know, you'd bring muscle, you'd bring somebody. You know, I was armed, uh, you know, for most of those years. I was heavy, as they say in the trade, but um, I never wanted to use that gun ever. Guns scare me. I don't like them. Didn't like carrying one. Uh, so, you you know, usually find an off-duty cop and work with them. What was your relationship like with, with cops when you were doing this work, Don? I mean, you must have been on the same beat, chasing criminals, looking for runaways. You would have encountered a lot. What kind of relationship did you have with the police? Good, for the most part, you know, because um, we were sort of an auxiliary force. We could do things they couldn't <laughs> legally. They could do things that we couldn't. And so, you know, you you built relationships. Anytime you're dealing with, with police, that's a relationship business, you know. Uh, even as a writer, that's a relationship business. And so the, the point was, you know, to build friendships, to build relationships, to take the time to do that. 
and and to be legitimately helpful when you could. What police did you meet in that work that you admired? Who who do you remember as as the kind of person that you thought this is an officer who who does their job well? I met a lot of them. You know, listen, I met some who were terrible. You know, I, I met some who were brutal and racist and and all of that. But, you know, there were some that I met that were um, humanitarians, probably too strong a word, but they they definitely had souls. And they were, you see, we tend to think, particularly crime fiction writers and the public, that the uh, cop's primary relationship was with the criminal. It's not. By the time the cop arrives, the criminal's usually gone. Their primary relationship is with the victim, and if it's a homicide, sadly, the victim's family. And and I've been struck over the years at how much that sticks with these guys, you know, very often for a lifetime. What made you decide that it was time to to leave that private investigation work? Well, you know, I went back to it later in life, but on kind of a much higher level and, and made a decision later in life as well to leave it. But at that time, you know, I was getting nowhere. I was, you know, in my young 20s, there's no career future in that. You kept getting hurt, you know, even if you win a fight, you get hurt. And um, someone from my old college called and they offered me a teaching assistantship. Uh, and I thought, yeah. You know, it, it's time to leave. <laughs> the first day I got back into college at the University of Nebraska, you know, very pure sort of place in the Midwest. Uh, I was in the library and somebody tipped over a library cart, a book cart. And I dove to the floor reaching for a gun that was no longer there. And I was so humiliated. I almost quit. I went to the dean and said, you know, I, I can't do this. I'm not this person anymore. Uh, and fortunately, they explained adrenaline to me and uh, said it'll get better, you know. When you went back to college, Don, you studied military history. Did you have a plan mm-hmm. for where that would take you? <laughs> no plan. No plan at all. Um, there was no plan, Sarah. I was making all this up as I went along, you know. You did a stint in the State Department. How did that suit you? Not. Um, it was extremely brief. Uh, look, if you have degrees in African and military history, it's not, you know, the world's not pounding on your door to offer you jobs, right? You're pretty narrow. And so I was supposed to have gone into the foreign service as an expert on African military affairs, which in fact I was. But a buddy of mine had started a little photographic safari firm in, in Kenya by the seat of his pants. And uh, he had grown to the point where he needed a number two. Uh, I spoke some of the languages and had some of the Bush skills, you know, to hopefully to be able to bring the same number of people out as you brought in, which is a serious job requirement. And, and it has to be the same people too. By the way. You can't just sub somebody in. Oh, I left with eight. I came back with eight. What's your problem? <laughs> and so uh, I chucked the, the, you know, State Department career uh, and became a safari bum. How did Africa, life in Africa, compare to the wilds of New York City? It was safer, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Less violent. Yeah, look, uh, Africa's wonderful, and that was a wonderful job. You know, um, I, I sometimes, like the job I have now, like writer, I can't believe how lucky I am to have it. How were you, Don, at keeping the tourists on safari with you happy? You were good at keeping them alive, but what about 
granting their safari wishes? Uh, boy, that that's a task. You know, uh, I was good at it. I was good at it. Believe it or not, I was diplomatic and because that was my job. And, and I sincerely wanted them to have a wonderful time. And I wanted them to see everything they wanted to see, but more so to understand maybe a little bit behind what they were seeing. And not only just animals, but to try to give them a sense of the people and the history and the culture. But yeah, you know, a lot of times you're, you were dealing with very wealthy, entitled people. And so they loved you until they didn't get the least little thing that they wanted at the moment that they wanted it. And then they hated you. You know, there was, there was no middle ground. <laughs> you know, it was a 180 degree switch. But yeah, we worked hard to, to keep them happy, you know, because they spend a lot of money and, and, and you, you really do want them to have a great experience. You, you fell in love with an American woman, Jean, and she came out mm-hmm. to see you on Safari, John. <laughs> How did that did. trip pan yeah. out? Ah, <laughs> well, we've been dating. I was in love, right? I mean, I love at first sight, by the way. Uh, it, it took her a little longer. Like, well, tell me, where, where did you first see Jean? How did she strike you where you first fell in love? Lincoln, Nebraska. I had just come back from New York. Um, I was waiting at a bus stop to go down to campus, and she came jogging by with two dogs. And I knew one of the dogs <laughs> as belonging the dog. to the I knew the dog. I knew Dinah the dog. And I thought, what's that woman doing with Dinah the dog? But she was so striking, you know. And so later that evening, I was walking back from campus and I stopped in to see my friends who own Dinah the dog. (laughs) And there's this woman and she's the sister of one of my friends, as it turns out. And I, like I I was, I I admit it readily, I was in love, you know, just like, gah, gah. Uh, She was not. (laughs) She was dating someone named Nigel, and I I just object on principle (laughs) to any American named Nigel, you know, I just think it's wrong. I suppose this isn't the time to tell you that my husband's called Nigel. But that's okay, he's Australian, (laughs) right? That's fine. If he's Australian or a Brit, Nigel's just fine. But an American named Nigel, come on, you know, in Nebraska, it's wrong. It's wrong. So uh, I lurked for a while, but, you know, I was a professional lurker. That's what I used to do for a living, right? So, yeah, worked out and we were dating and then I had to go off to Africa for the safari season. I was going to be gone several months. And and so I, I talked her into coming on the last safari of the season and we'd fly home together. So she, poor woman, flies to Nairobi, never been out of the country. Now I'm flying her to Africa. A 70-year-old African man picks her up at the airport. Um, and uh, Peter Kinyolo, who I would trust my life with, so I would trust him with Jean. And he drives her up. We're camped on a river in north-central Kenya. And that night, the first night, we're in our tent about midnight. And five enraged female elephants stampede the camp because some people camped up river and thrown wine bottles at the baby elephants, you know, charming. So we come out of our tents, there are elephants everywhere. I mean, it's a really lethal situation. And we used to camp with these German scientists and they're running around with spears because they want to stab the French tourists who threw the bottles and elephants are running crazy and it's chaos. And uh, the elephants finally go through and I turn and I think, well, that's the end of this relationship. <laughs> I look at Jean and her eyes are, you know, platter wide. 
And she looks at me and she says, that was so cool. <laughs> marry me. <you> know? <laughs> marry me right now. <laughs> so uh, I ended up at the end of that safari. We're on an island off the coast of Kenya, Lamu Island. And I proposed with a, a string of beads, which is what I could afford at the time. And, and for some inexplicable reasons, she said yes. And uh, we're still married, you know, 37 <laughs> years later. Hmm. You also started leading safaris in China and were looking for pandas, but what animals took up most of your time? Monkeys, bandit monkeys. <laughs> there were these monkeys that, uh, monkeys so egregious, by the way, they, they would rob pilgrims walking up these Buddhist mountains <laughs> and they do it on switchbacks, right? So that they'd ambush them. There were monkeys so egregious, and they were the size of baboons. These were not little monkeys. That there were wanted posters on individual monkeys. You'd, you'd walk, <laughs> and there'd be a sketch of a monkey on the side of a tree. And in Chinese, it would say, "You know, some money you want if you, you know, bring us the head of this monkey." So I'd have to get ahead of my group who were walking up the trail, and, and I'd hack up through the jungle. And get above the monkeys and throw rocks and sticks to chase them off and then bring the group through and then rinse and repeat, you know, on the next five switchbacks. So, was, so did you see pandas as well, Don, or was it all the monkeys? I did. It's mostly monkey, you know, every <laughs> once in a while we, we'd see something black and white, you know, through the, the bamboo, you know, rainforest. And I would at least claim it was a panda. So that people felt, you know, satisfied. How did a, a dinner party in Toronto lead you to doing a different kind of work again? Yeah, I was I was very happy uh, guiding safaris, and uh, the the people who who had that firm were allied with some people who were starting um, uh, academic summer programs at Oxford, and they needed someone to direct theater. And I was an actor as a child, and I directed some theater at university. And so they said, do you want this job? And I said, no, absolutely not. I, you know, I, I don't want to go back to England. I've been there chasing runaways around. And, and, um, and uh, they said, well, just, just, you got to tell this guy, no yourself. Right. So they flew me to Toronto and now I'm mad, right. I had to fly to Toronto with all that involved. And, and so I ate everything in the, you know, the bar in the room, you know, I ate the, $20 candy bars <laughs> and the M&Ms. And, and I go to this cocktail dinner party and I meet this guy. And 20 minutes later, I'm on the phone to my wife who had just married and said, hey, babe, what would you think if I maybe mean, went to England for a month before Africa? What had happened know? in that 20 minutes? Jim Basker, he's a professor at Columbia University in New York. I loved his vision. He said, you know, I want to bring kids to this great area uh, that has this tradition of learning and creativity and art and expose them to things and, you know, in that environment. And I thought, great. Yeah, I'm on board. And so I, for the next 10 years, I directed Shakespeare plays there. And for the 10 years after that would come as a guest lecturer. With your first production of, of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, how familiar were you with the play at that first rehearsal? I think I'd read it. <laughs> Uh, I told him I could direct Shakespeare. I hadn't done it before, you know, but I don't know why that should be considered an obstacle. Uh, I, I was just reading ahead of the kids, you know, and then and then going to bookstores in Oxford 
trying to read books about Twelfth Night, you know, so I had something clever to say and, you know, all of that. I was rehearsing it in the same room uh, where John Gielgud had directed Richard Burton in Hamlet. And so that was kind of awe-inspiring. You know, you'd think, well, that was good enough, what we just did. And then you'd think, no, no, John Gielgud, Sir John Gielgud directed Sir Richard Burton in this room. Maybe it's not good enough. You know, maybe, maybe let's try again. So you and your wife had really cemented your romance on safari in Kenya. And now you've brought her to Oxford in, in England. What kind of life were the two of you living there in Oxford? It was hideous. I, I don't know why she stayed married to me. It rained all the time. It was cold. And in those days in Oxford, everything closed at 10 p.m. And my rehearsals would last a little longer, you know. So we were living in uh, Pembroke College, Oxford, you know, behind the walls, big stone walls and the big wooden gates. And, and uh, I couldn't get in because they'd lock the gates at 10. And so the only place to eat was a food truck in the era before food trucks were a thing. And it sold, it sold fish and chips. And so I would stop there and get two orders of fish and chips and two warm Coca-Colas. And then I'd walk down the street because our room had a window that opened on the street. You know, grease is running down my arm, you know, and I would knock on the window. And if I had fish and chips, she'd let me in. <laughs> <laughs> open the window and I'd crawl through and we'd sit huddled at my little desk eating these fish and chips, which stunk up the room all night and drinking warm Coca-Colas. And we had a, a single bed with one pillow. And you actually had to go outside to take a shower. You had to go outside and cross a quad to take a shower, you know, that occasionally had some warm water in it. I bet it wasn't like that for John Gilgood. It was not like that for John Gilgood, I'm, I'm quite <laughs> sure. But it was like that for Don and Jean Winslow. And again, we stayed married. I, I don't know how. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Don, in those those years where you were variously a, a safari bum, as you put it, a director of Shakespeare at Oxford, a private investigator in, in Times Square, New York, were you also writing? I was. When? <laughs> you know, for a while I wasn't. And then, well, the same guy who, who got me to Oxford one day said to me, you know, you've been talking about writing this book for years and you never do it. You should either write or shut up. And uh, I took that to Africa with me. And at the time I had uh, malaria and dysentery and I was sick and I was huddled outside of a campfire at dawn thinking, yeah, you know, he's right. 
I should do this. And I'd heard the great Joe Wambau, great American crime writer, say that when he was a murder cop, he was a homicide investigator for the Los Angeles Police Department, and he wanted to be a writer, and he decided he was going to write 10 pages a day. And I thought, I can't do 10, but I could do five, you know? And so I thought, I'm doing five pages a day, no matter what. And so whether I was in a tent or a plane or a train or a hotel or whatever, I wrote five pages, most often by hand. Uh, And about three years later, I had a book. When you were a kid growing up, Don, whose stories did you love to listen to? Was there a storyteller in your family? Oh, yeah, my dad. My dad. My dad was a rock and tour, you know. He was a sailor, was on Guadalcanal with the Marines at age 18. And then, by the way, in Australia, in Melbourne. And he always spoke so highly of Australia and how wonderful the people were to him. So I, I had this image of you guys from a very young age. I had a fondness for y'all because my dad would talk about how wonderful Australians were. And he's right. And uh, he and his buddies, you know, his Navy buddies, and he was a non-com. I don't, I don't know how to translate that into Australian, you know, somewhere between enlisted and an officer, uh, chief petty officer. And so... He, he and his, his Navy buddies, who were tough guys, you know, would um, sit at the dining room table and drink at night, you know, occasionally. And, and I would hide under the table and they'd pretend to think I wasn't there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I thought I was fooling them, you know. And they'd tell stories of barroom brawls and crazy ship captains and ports of call. And as the years went by, the stories got better and better. You know, and uh, I remember sitting there thinking, you know, if if I could be a storyteller when I grow up, that would be the very best thing in the world. You know? What happened when your, your sister's boyfriend proposed? How did your dad take that to his group of Navy buddies? <laughs> he, um, there was alcohol involved. <laughs> 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 I think a couple of them were over refreshed, perhaps. Uh, my dad put it to a vote. He said, um, <laughs> I was there and I loved it. I was having a great time. He said, I've got my best friends in the world present. And, and, the, and the guy, Glenn, who's still married to my sister, by the way, was sitting there. And he said, and I, this young man has asked permission to marry my daughter. And I'm putting it to a vote to my dearest comrades and shipmates. <laughs> should we accept him or should we throw him through the window? <laughs> And uh, I listen, I like Glenn, but I was rooting for throwing through the window just because I'd never seen that. You know, that would, that would have been outstanding. Uh, but they accepted him. I, I, it wasn't, it was close though. I think it was like four to three or something, you know. <laughs> if that one guy hadn't just been slumped down and raised his hands, everything could have been different. <laughs> <laughs> could have been different. Could have been window repairs and, you know, my sister might still be single. I don't know. So your dad was in the Navy. How did he meet your mum, Don? He was uh, home from World War II. You know, he'd done Guadalcanal and then Australia and then back for another campaign. And he had malaria, it seems to run in the family. And was in New Orleans, that great city where my mom's from. And uh, my grandmother was a professional gambler there. And uh, they met on a blind date. He was in the hospital recouping from malaria. And it was New Year's Eve. And uh, he was got a furlough and she was a friend of a friend. And uh, they went out on New Year's Eve, and the story goes they hated each other, but uh, they were married six weeks later, and neither me or my sister appeared for years, so it wasn't that. 
I never did get the full story, but that's how they met. I've often said, you know, my 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 father was a, a sailor who loved books, and my mother was a librarian who loved a sailor. <laughs> you grew up by the ocean. Did you spend a lot mm-hmm. of time in in the water as a kid? Almost all of it. Almost all of it. Um, my dad had me body surfing, I think, when I was four years old. I swim better than I walk. Um, I have this slight deformity and bones in my back, so my right foot kind of sticks out at an angle like a ballet dancer. So I'm extraordinarily clumsy. And uh, so, uh, I, yeah, I, I'm probably more comfortable in the ocean than I am on land. And what was that community like for you as you were growing up? Did it feel like a tribe? Yeah. When I was younger, you know, we would rent a, a cottage for summers and, and any Navy or Marine was invited. And so I grew up with all these uncles and aunts. You know, I, I'd wake up in the morning sleeping out on this porch and there'd be sailors just stretched out on the floors and and they played with me and, you know, taught me diving and, you know, all kinds of, of things. So I had this great kind of upbringing in that regard. And then later, you know, at an older age, junior high and high school, you grew up in a beach community. I'm sure you're all familiar with that kind of culture. Uh, you're barefoot all the time. You hitchhike everywhere. And and you're in the water all the time. Yeah. Years later, your dad sent you a brick as a gift. Why did he do that? Wow. You've done your work. The brick is a brick from a, a hockey arena because my dad was crazy about hockey as am I. And we used to go to this minor league hockey team, the Providence Reds ice hockey and, and watch it. And, and eventually that auditorium was torn down and he sent me a brick with this little plaque that said, those were the best of times. So a beautiful place to grow up and beautiful memories. But what did the future look like by the time you were a teenager, if you were going to stay there? There was no future there. You know, with all love and respect for my hometown, those were tough years in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. I, I don't know if this translates into Australian. I, I refer to it as a Bruce Springsteen kind of town. You know, the, the fishing was just, even if you wanted to be a fisherman, that probably wasn't available to you, although that was a lot of people's futures. You know, three kids in my high school graduating class died out there in the fishing boats. That was the life. Uh, the factories in town had gone south literally there's still empty buildings there uh my dad used to uh, drive me to the fish processing plant the fish factory and park about 100 yards away where you could smell it still intently and he'd say because i was a bad student i was a lousy student and he would say if you don't buckle down and start studying you're going to spend your life shoveling fish guts in that building and so uh it was time to go, you know, and look, it was that era. It was a social revolution. We were as 17 year olds cynical and kind of already beat, you know, we, we'd been through the assassinations. We'd been through the long, hot summers. Uh, we were all just sort of knowing that we were going to get drafted to go to Vietnam. And so there was a, for me, a strong desire and a need to get out of there. And which I did. There's been uh, a lot of cause for reflection about what America is and where it's heading over the last decade. Mm-hmm. And you became very vocal in the lead up to the last presidential election. Yeah. 
How have the, the Trump years left you feeling about your country? Uncertain, uh, a little disillusioned. I woke up the morning after that election thinking it's not the country I thought it was. Having said that, we did beat him by 7 million votes in the last election. Thank you very much. You know, and so that restored some of my faith, you know, but it's these have been, you know, for everyone in the world, really, these have been harsh years in America, largely, in my opinion, because of Trump. But I'm right. <laughs> and then, and then, of course, COVID, you know, uh, and Trump's role in that has been you know, understated, I think. So uh, I think, I don't know if this is true in Australia. I think we're a tired country. I think people are tired. I, don't, I, I think people want escapism. I don't think they want to confront some of these issues that have been in our faces for, you know, six years now. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been hard. But, uh, you know, uh, pessimism is not an option. It's a suicide pack, really. You know, and so I, I think we have to retain a, a certain kind of positive attitude because otherwise, what do you do? You know, do you just lay down and curl up into a ball? I don't, I don't think so. Those values that you grew up around, and I guess that kind of version of masculinity from your dad and his buddies that were there who were strong but, but gentle and, and encouraging of you, are those values still there or, or do you still see them around you or does that feel a little less, less shared from when you were growing up? Yeah, you know, my dad passed away a long time ago. And, uh, but I, I think that, that some of those values still, yeah, I really feel them, you know, and it, and it goes past that. You know, I, I can take you to the exact spot where my great-great-grandfather was killed in the Civil War fighting to end slavery. And he knew what he was doing. And my dad fighting in World War II to, to preserve democracy. My dad was a real patriot. And I'm almost glad that he didn't live to see the, the horrible assault on our capital. I think he would have been heartbroken to have, to have seen that and certainly outraged as I was. And so um, the night before the election, when things didn't look good, I was actually looking at real estate in, in Perth and in France. Um, because, you know, I'd been a very vocal opponent of, of Trump's and I knew the next four years were not going to be good if he won. But then I thought, you know, no, your ancestors are buried here fighting for these values. And you were not raised to cut and run when, when things got tough, you know. That sounds very macho and dramatic. I mean it too, but but that's that was what I was thinking. Alongside this great love and commitment to your country and the the experiences within it, you spent many years writing about the drug wars in Mexico and the the movement of drugs from Mexico to the U.S. What was it that first got you interested in writing about the drug trade? Oh boy, was the massacre of 19 innocent men, women, and children in a village just across the border here in Mexico. I woke up one morning, sitting exactly where I'm sitting right now, and read that story. And I could not figure out how anything could get to that point, how any phenomenon could get to the point where people would be willing and able to do that. And I had no interest at the time or knowledge of the, the drug trade. It wasn't my thing. 
so I started to try to get answers, not really to write about them, but to um, explain to myself. I was reading philosophy books, you know, and I'm a lightweight, right? So, you know, people would laugh to think that I was reading philosophy books, but about, you know, the problem of evil and what is evil, but I found no answers there. And, and then, so I went to history and then journalism and then documents. And then one day I found myself sitting down typing the first book in what became a trilogy. Was that question or that issue, the problem of evil, the real motivator for you in writing those books? Yeah, it was. And, but then I started to read about drug trafficking and drugs in America and the war on drugs. The more that I read, the angrier I got uh, about our drug policy and about our attitudes uh, toward Mexico and Central America and the hypocrisy of when the war on drugs met the war on communism, the war on drugs always lost. And so that was a six-year project, that first book. Three years of it were just research. And then after it, I swore I would never go back to that world, by the way. What drew you back then? Again, this sounds pretentious, uh, duty. Uh, I, I did not want to go. I didn't. But then things got so much worse in Mexico, far worse than we would have imagined in our worst nightmares in that earlier phase. And I felt like I was sitting on the sidelines, you know, when I knew that I could explain to American readers and I guess European readers what was going on in, in novelistic terms. Yeah. And my agent kept asking me, Shane, my buddy Shane, are you going to write that book? Or I would hang up on it. He would call up and say, are you going to write about it? Hang up. Or I'd pretend to be a pizza place, you know, <laughs> 20 minutes and I'd hang up. Uh, but but I, I felt bad about it, you know, and, and I felt I, I know what's going on here. And and what's going on is not being is not what's being told to the public. And so I don't know. It wasn't a clean decision. One day I just, again, got up and started typing that damn book. The numbers are so huge, they're hard to get a handle on, you know, the numbers of murders, the number of yes. the, the billions of dollars, the quantities of drugs. Is mm -hmm. storytelling a way to make those impossible figures human or relatable in so. some way? I think so. I, I, I looked at that as my job when I was writing those books. You know, it look, it's it, headlines always become stereotypes. And it's not that we don't need headlines. We do. But they, they always become stereotypes. And I think what a novelist can do is take the reader into a world and show them the interior lives of those people. You know, it's, it's one thing to talk about illegal immigration. It's another thing to spend months with a 10-year-old boy coming up from Central America on one of those murderous trains. You, you, you can't but see it differently. It's, it's one thing to talk about the opioid crisis, yeah, or heroin addiction, but it's another thing to spend a lot of time with, you know, a 26-year-old woman heroin addict. You can't help but see it differently, or a Mexican journalist, or for that matter, a drug trafficker, or a, and there were such things, a 12-year-old hitman for the Mexican cartels. Uh, when I first heard that story, I assumed there, were, there was one, there were at least six 12-year-olds who were assassins for the cartels. So uh, that's, that's our job, 
you know, that's what we're supposed to do is, is to bring the reader into proximity to that in a way that lets them see it from the inside out. And, and that's what I tried to do. Don, if you were in charge, if you were President Don Winslow, what would you do about the drug trade? Well, if I were president, I don't know, if I were emperor, I, I would legalize all drugs tomorrow across the board. I would end the war on drugs. You know, I once took out a full page ad in the Washington Post advocating just that because it's not a legal problem and God, it's not a military problem. It's a social health problem. And until we fully approach that problem from that respect, we will never solve it. You're never going to solve this trying to cut the supply of drugs as long as there's a demand. You never will. You know, we should have learned that during prohibition in the 1930s. So we can't seem to learn this lesson. And, and the other thing I would do is, is I would try to ask the basic question, which we're not even asking, never mind answering which is, what's the pain? What hurts? Opioids are always a response to pain. Thank God. Thank God they're there. Yeah. And there are cases of people being addicted because they had a physical issue and, and then, you know, they just became physically addicted. But for the most part, that's not the case. The case is they're responding to some sort of psychological or emotional or social pain. You know, Sarah, if you go to a doctor, what's the first thing she's going to ask you? What hurts? And, and until we find out what hurts, where's the pain, we're, we're not going to solve this problem. So the time you've spent with people struggling with addiction and learning about their stories, how do you answer that? What, what does hurt? What's driving people towards this? You know, there are so many different answers. It's all individual. But if, if I had to generalize, it's isolation of one kind or another. It's a disconnect with family or with society. Something, something got broken somewhere. You know, we were making progress. You know, the death rate from overdoses was going sharply down until COVID. And then COVID hit and now it's spiked again. Uh, no stupid pun intended because isolation was enforced. And people who desperately needed human connection could no longer get it. And so now we saw deaths by overdoses going up again. Tell me about a young man you call Michael, who you got to know. Yeah. A young man that um, agreed to talk to me about his addiction over the course of about four years when I was writing a book called The Border. And, um, you know, he went in and out. He'd have brief periods of sobriety and then fail and then fail again and brief periods of sobriety. He was a lovely guy, you know, bright and funny and very kind, warm heart. But he could never seem to kick it. We were talking about um, he was sober for a while, he's clean for a while, and was asking me to help him get into community college or college and what that might look like. And I um, was supposed to have a phone conversation with him one afternoon about that. And uh, he was headed into treatment. They finally had a bed for him 
because he didn't have insurance and had to wait to get into treatment. And he was walking there and on the way he uh, overdosed and died. Um, you know, and I remember waiting for the phone call and instead got a, a call that night from his mother. Yeah, so that's uh, that's Michael. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Uh, have you maintained a connection with his family? Are you in touch with his yeah. mum still? Yeah, yeah, we talk frequently. Uh, and, and she always asked me about my son, <laughs> who's an adult now and, and doing really well, you know, career-wise and is getting married next year. And I always have this reluctance, you know, to answer that question because I, I'm trying to think what she's feeling. But she's so generous and caring and genuinely wanting to know how Thomas is and, um, um, yeah. You know, in your writing, you deliberately take yourself to some really dark places. Mm-hmm. Where's the light in your life? How do you escape that in, oh. in, the, in the hours that you're not at your desk writing? Oh, my God. You know, um, you need to meet my wife. <laughs> I feel like I've met her through this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and I like her. Yeah, I like her too. Thanks. <laughs> she, <laughs> you know, that's, that's light. Look, I am one of the luckiest people on earth, right? I'm, I'm married to a woman that I'm still in love with. You know, there, there are times I, I will look at her from across the room or across the deck or something, and she stops my heart. <laughs> you know, I can't believe that that I'm that lucky. And and I was lucky enough to have a kid that, that I adore and who, who seems to like me and that, you know, we're still very close. Uh Good friends, you know, and a job that I love, a job that I've always wanted to have. So I'm, I'm one of the blessed of the earth, Sarah. So if it's easy to fall into that darkness, and, it, and I think I, I did fall into it when I was writing The Cartel, uh, but you, you come out of it and, and you take a little time and then you go home and you see this beautiful face and this beautiful spirit and, and someone who cares about you. You know, and years ago, I had to come home and play with my kid, which is such a blessing and so much fun. So, yeah, you know, and again, I would never compare myself in any way to the Mexican journalists, hundreds of whom have been murdered covering that story. That's not me. Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of light in my life. And if you'd taken one of the more usual paths open to, to guys like you, fireman, policeman, criminal, which would have, <laughs> which would have suited you best? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I think people, some people who know me might instantly answer criminal. Because you know? <laughs> crime writers sort of are. Uh, but uh, I would probably have been a cop, I think. You know, if, if I'd gone in that direction, I, I think I would have gone and tried to become a, a homicide investigator. Well, Don, the next best thing is writing about it, I guess. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing well, some of you your so stories. Much. Yeah, thank you. This is this has gone by too fast. And uh, thank you for your hospitality and kindness and, and the great questions. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.